0: Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work.
1: If I listen to those first few episodes, and I'm really glad this was right before that moment on the internet where everything is around forever. This is right before that. So these episodes are gone, and they should be gone.
2: From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 18 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Jad Abumrad talks about the making of Radio Radiolab.
1: I remember like those early days of editing being like, oh, maybe I am a musician. Maybe I am a composer.
2: Debbie's interview with Jad Abumrad is part of a Design Matters live tour presented in New York City on September 18th, 2023 by
0: On Air. Before we start, I just wanna say thank you to you all for coming out on a rainy night. And if anybody had told me 18 years ago that I'd be sitting on a stage with Jed, a boom rod, I would have thought they were hallucinating or high. And so it is just a real honor to be here with you tonight to have this conversation. Thank you.
1: That's super kind of you. Thank you, Debbie. I'll just uh, just say, like, you're one of the OGs. You know, you really, you really like. So, I, I, I. This is an honor. Thank to, you to be on you.
0: You know, I didn't know what OG meant, <laughs> and the first time anybody referred to me as OG was Roman Mars, and I thought maybe he was saying something mean. <laughs> <laughs> And so, you know, I'm a Scorpio, so I got like, wait, what does that mean? And actually, it was Maria Popova who said, actually, it means original gangsta. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. (laughs) Um, So here's my first question for you. I know that your musical taste goes high and low, but is it true that you think that Underworld's Rez is the best techno song ever made?
1: Whoa. (laughs) That... (laughs) <laughs> that I did not expect that question. Um, okay, so i'm gonna I'm gonna double down on that. You I, are. I don't know where I said that, well, but I you could, said I could that, imagine me saying that.
0: Yeah, you said it was horrible music, but a legitimately amazing song, and you think. That it's the best techno song and horrible. That was the sort of high-low part that well, I was I curious about. Well, I think that's just about.
1: endemic to the genre of techno. <laughs> it is all incredible and also awful at the same time. <laughs> and that it's like, it's just so repetitive. But you know what? 1993, for all you youngsters, was a shining year for techno. Mm-hmm. And you had you had Res, you had, I believe you had like the... Chemical Brothers, before they, before they jumped the shark, had an incredible album. There's just great music that came in that time. So yes, Rez is amazing. It's like a 14-minute song. It builds, 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 builds. It has the drop. It's just great. So yes, I would say it is the best so techno.
0: So you have Double Down, it is official.
1: Yes. When you when you put this on the podcast, could you play Rez?
0: Oh, I think we absolutely oh, can. Oh, yes. Absolutely.
1: It's probably fair use at this point, because it's so old.
0: Yes. Good way to turn off our listeners, almost (laughs) at the top.
1: It holds up, though. It holds up.
0: (laughs) Chad, your parents were both born in Lebanon. Your father comes from a little village high up in the mountains called Wadi Taror. Mm -hmm. and your mother grew up in Junier. They emigrated to the United States in 1972 and moved to Nashville, Tennessee. Why Nashville?
1: You know, I think it was just a situation... um, I spent my childhood asking that question, by the way. Uh, I think it was a situation where my dad, so my dad was uh, training to be a doctor at the AUB, American University of Beirut. And I think after med school, he was just gonna go wherever a residency program would take him, and he ended up at Vanderbilt. And so we, as a family, ended up in Nashville. Uh, it's, it's interesting, it's, it's, very, it's a very like right now, 2023 is a very first full circle moment for me because I, I just started teaching at Vanderbilt. Yes. So I'm actually now going back to Vanderbilt but in a completely new capacity. But yeah, I mean, we ended up in Nashville. It was a very different Nashville at that time. That was at a time when sort of Lebanon was synonymous with terrorism in the sort of popular imagination. So um, it was a little odd. You know, I spent a lot of time in my room. Yeah. Uh, But it's funny, I've come to really love Nashville now, and it's just a very different place.
0: You spent a lot of time in your room making music. Yes. You actually describe yourself back then as a scrawny, awkward Lebanese kid growing up in a Southern Baptist universe during the Gulf War. And as a result, you spent a lot of time in your room playing with a four-track cassette recorder, making imaginary films for movies that didn't exist.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, that, for me, everything that came after from going to Oberlin to study music to tumbling my way through the side door into a radio studio to radio lab to everything else after, really was as a musician. I think I, that was the sort of the always the foundational idea in my head was I would be a musician. And um, I did try that. I failed at it many times. And will get to that. Oh, okay. So I'll, I'll, I'll hold the failure. But yeah, radio was, uh, for me, first and foremost, uh, an attempt to be a composer you know to be a musician
0: what kind of music were you making in your room
1: you know i would make stuff i mean the way that a four track would work is uh you would sort of fill up the first three tracks and then bounce them down to the fourth track and then fill up the first three tracks and then kind of continually sort of and and so there wasn't a lot of you couldn't really structure the music the way you can now with a digital audio workstation. So it ended up being these very long, kind of meandering, filmic things. I was listening to a lot of Bernard Herman at that time. Like that was the kind of kid I was. Um, I listened to like the Vertigo soundtrack and um, I just loved like the the sense that music could create pictures and could create internal narratives. And so I would just do stuff that I thought, like, oh, this is sort of, this this is like an adventure story, but I didn't know anything about the characters. So it would be something that maybe would be in a movie Kevin Costner might have acted in if he were maybe a little weirder.
0: I was thinking more like Last of the Mohicans with Daniel Day-Lewis. Yeah, that's
1: that's the general space, yeah.
0: Um, As an aside, when I was working on my prep for this show... I came across a list of your favorite soundtracks. And I saw on one of them a very strange movie that I saw a couple of years ago when everybody was just sort of watching movies during the pandemic with Nicole Kidman called Birth.
1: Oh my God. And one of the best soundtracks, one of the best movies. It's a. You don't agree. You don't agree. (laughs) It's
0: see, interesting. Nobody,
1: <laughs> nobody agrees with me that this is one of the great triumphs of cinema, was this movie.
0: Well, I, I thought the audience, since you brought it up, I thought the audience might enjoy what you envision when you're running and listening to that soundtrack.
1: Mm. Well, okay, it's interesting you say that. First of all, this is a movie about, uh, let's see, Nicole Kidman is, so the the... Her husband dies even before the movie starts. You hear his voice, and then you, uh, then the first shot of the movie is him running down a snowy path in Central Park, and it's shot from sort of a crane behind him, and you sort of run with him down this path, and it's the most incredible music you've ever heard, very uh, it's like, like these deep strings and these little like flutey kind of sounds, and and then he stops running. Has a heart attack and dies. And that's the first scene in the movie. And then the subsequent plot, which I think is brilliant, but you clearly disagree. Well,
0: I, I mean I I find it fascinating because I think about these kinds of things all the time. And when Jad tells you about the plot, you'll understand, especially if you've been listening to the podcast, this is something I'm really fascinated by. But I'm also skeptical. No, oh, because yeah. you know, science.
1: No, no, it's a preposterous story. The whole idea of the, the plot is that this ten so the man who dies, who you never meet, was having an affair with somebody. They were writing love letters to each other. They bury the love letters in, in somewhere in Central Park. A young boy finds those letters and is so intoxicated by the feelings communicated in the letters that it overtakes him and he becomes, in his own mind, the reincarnated soul of this husband. and. Nicole Kidman then is like, "Is this actually my husband visiting me from beyond the grave?" It gets very creepy. There's almost like a like love 10. scene. He's ten. <laughs> it gets incredibly creepy, but I thought it was quite beautiful. But actually, it is, but
0: but the, the whole notion of everlasting love and what we yeah. how we project our feelings into another, that part was super fascinating. Yeah. yeah,
1: and Alexander Desplat. I'm not sure if I'm saying his name correctly. One of the best film composers working. He wrote the music for it. and um,
0: So when you're running, what do you envision?
1: Well, the thing is, what great film music does is it takes the sort of like puny little lives that we lead and it makes it seem epic, right? That you're suddenly not just a singular human, but you're like on an epic journey. Like you're in a little, you're in a ship that you're plowing your way through the sort of, through the, waves and the music is this massive ocean that buoys the ship and carries it forward and it makes everything like what I love about that particular music the first time you hear it it's like this dude's just running but the music knows something like it's it's like you're like what does the music know it knows something's gonna happen and then he dies and I love that idea that the music exists out of time it knows the present it knows the future it knows the past there's something incredibly powerful about film music for me in the way that it manipulates time and 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 understands the lives of the of the characters so yeah i just i think that's one of the best like examples of film music ever
0: another on your list that's also one of my absolute favorite and then i'll move on is solaris
1: oh my god which is
0: one of the greatest of all time
1: original or the remake
0: the remake oh
1: yeah yeah cliff martinez who used to be the drummer for uh Red Hot Chili Peppers, then became a film composer, made like just incredible, like sort of an uh, electro-acoustic blend. It's just, it's amazing. It's so
0: amazing how many rock and rollers are doing uh, film composing now. Johnny Greenwood, uh, Trent Reznor, it's wonderful. What instruments were you playing back in your bedroom?
1: I would play um, piano and sort of synthesizer types. This would be, like, early 80s, so kind of DX7, Roland, D- I'm, so, I'm sorry, this is super nerdy. Uh, like, just early, like, not the synthesizers that we all, like, fetishize now, not those ones. The really, like, kind of cheesy-sounding ones.
0: You went to Oberlin College. You graduated in 95 with majors in creative writing and music composition. And you've said that you were taught by leftover 1960s lefties who were teaching 12 tone composition classes and you were in total despair.
1: Yeah, I mean, the first, maybe second recital that I went to, somebody sawed a piano in half. Like, that was their piece. <laughs>
0: well, look out, John Cale. <laughs> and
1: I, I was doing these, like, little, like, fake film music jingles type stuff. I just remember, like, where have I landed? I mean, it took me a while, but I, I, I learned to love that music, you know, but, uh, yeah, it was, I was I was out of place for a while.
0: At that point, you thought you were going to be a musician and write for films. And I'm only gonna be quoting something you said this isn't my opinion at what point did you begin to believe that you didn't have any musical talent
1: (laughs) well i i held on to that delusion for a while it was really when i graduated and i moved to new york and i started trying to score uh student films dance pieces it's funny one of the dance pieces that my one of my earliest dance pieces i scored we did it like just a few blocks from here at an abandoned warehouse this is back in the stone age and um it was i i remember having a lot of trouble solving problems with music like i could write the music but then someone would say i don't really like that and then i, I could never get to the next idea like i would just get stuck on my one thing and I think if you're going to be a really good musician, you have to be able to like, you know, change on a dime and like make a major into a minor, make a sort of sparkly thing into a deep thing. You have to be able to sort of pivot. I couldn't. This would have been four or five years out of school. I basically started working in this new field called the internet. This was at a time when like websites were first becoming like kind of like, this was sort of the late stage capitalist turn of the internet. And so uh, there was a lot of work. And pretty much anyone with a pulse could get a job in the internet at that point. And so I started doing, like, work on Condé Nast websites, you know. So you were, were
0: designing websites.
1: Kind, I wasn't even the designer. I was the person who, who, who went between the designer and the client. So I was, like, a, I guess a producer or an account manager or something. And I could make really good spreadsheets. And so I, that's what I did. And I had a real, like, as one does... I had a real like crisis of like, what am I gonna do? What am I doing with my life? And my then girlfriend, now wife, Carla Murthy, just one day, I remember we were standing on a platform of, uh, to the G train or something, and she was like, you like to make music, you like to write, you should go do radio, because that's kind of both, but neither. And so I started volunteering at a radio station, uh, WBAI Radio in um, downtown Manhattan, and um, right, it's WBAI <laughs> person. Um, W.A.I. back in the day, this is pre-my time, was like MTV. It, it, was it was fantastic. It was amazing. I got there a little bit late. I remember walking in on my first day and uh, the newsroom was sort of deserted because there had been some sort of leftist rebellion in in the radio station, which there was like every Tuesday <laughs> at, at, at WBAI. And so there was one guy and he, and he clearly had to put the news on and he was strapped and I walked in and he was like, you take this tape recorder and a mic and just go cover this thing happening at City Hall. And I remember like running to City Hall being like, what does that mean? How do I, how do I cover something? Like, I remember getting there and just like, why are you angry? You know, just like not even knowing <laughs> what what questions to ask, and um, but then like I came back, and at that point, WBAI was still editing on on tape, like actual tape with razor blades. I just remember like putting the thing onto the actual tape, cutting it with the razor blades, recording my own voice, stitching that between the bits that I liked from the interviews, and then I had a news report on the air at three o'clock that day. And, and I just, it was it
0: because you learned the skills in your room with the four track? Or how did you learn how to cut tape and splice it together? I mean, I, had,
1: I was working on the computer uh, at that point, like most of humanity. Uh, but they were still on these reel-to-reel tape recorders, which actually is like, it's the most amazing way to work with tape because it's so tactile and you can kind of like, you can hold moments in a way and rock them back and forth between the playhead and find, it's a very, very cool way to sort of engage with the process and I just got hooked like instantly I was like oh this is what I should be doing um, thank goodness for Carla yeah well I mean Carla's made all the good decisions in my life um yeah so I and from that point on I just I volunteered this was a weird moment in um it's actually not weird I mean it's just one of the many moments in New York history where the, the city was like there were crazy I mean there was Endless police shootings at that point. Uh, Amadou Diallo, Malcolm Ferguson. I'm suddenly like running through the Bronx covering these things. I don't know how to do any of it, but you just sort of fake it. 9-11 happened right around there. The entire city transformed and we were just, we were uh, walking on the pile, basically covering what was happening. And I just got like a crash course in journalism. And along the way, I went from being a musician to being something between a musician, and a storyteller, and a journalist, which I still sort of think of as a composer, but it all happened in that, that short time.
0: You then began freelancing at WNYC, and in 2002, the program director offered you a late night Sunday slot on the AM band as a DJ of documentaries.
1: I know. What did <laughs> it's, it's, I know, I know
0: know what, what I read that you had to make connections between documentaries that included things like a BBC story from Zimbabwe or a sound art piece about dogs and you'd somehow have to make a connection between them how were you able to do that
1: that specific example I have no idea <laughs> um you, you know it, it was a uh, I mean the the whole idea of it at that point was WNYC at that point was a classical music station and then 9-11 happened and suddenly all of New York was asking questions about the world. Like we all had this sense that our lives as New Yorkers were suddenly globalized in a way. And so along with that, the program director was like, let's air documentaries from around the world to give us sort of a much wider lens. And so I begged everybody for their documentaries. Um, I called the BBC, I called Radio Netherlands, I called Australian Broadcasting Corporation. They sent me boxes of stuff, like old stuff. And I would just, I don't know, I would just make a... You know, like everyone, I was under the spell of This American Life, and so I would kind of do the themes, you know, the act one, act two, act three kind of thing. And I would just, you know, like... I remember my first episode was called Firsts, and it was somebody... Undergoing electroshock therapy, somebody talking about their period, like a radio rookies piece, and then it was some other piece. And I was just like, these are all firsts in some weird way. So, like just like choosing random themes to try and hold all of this content. You
0: can really the way you've described it, you could see the seeds of Radio Lab right there.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was if I listened to those first few episodes. And I'm really glad this was right before that moment on the internet where everything is around forever. This is right before that. So these episodes are gone and they should be gone. Yeah. Um, I kind of wish
0: my original ones were too, but they're still there. Oh, it's horrible. Yeah. It's like such
1: a curse that everything sticks around the way it does these days. But um, that, like if you listen to those old episodes, what you will hear is the sound of Radiolab, like from the very beginning. It sounds absolutely like the show but it's kind of half-assed. You know, like the, some of the stories are a li- like the connections are a little bit loose. Um, I mean that in a loving way. I don't mean that in a bad, critical way. Things weren't exactly fact-checked. It was just all very sort of like, throw it against the wall. Very experimental at times. Because I wasn't a journalist at that point. I was still learning. I was still figuring out what it means to report something. It was only really, I'd say, three or four years after that that I, I would say, I figured out like, this is how you do the job. Um, I was still trying out different voices on the mic, in a way, in that way that when you don't know how to talk in front of a mic, all the other voices that you've heard in your life come out. You know, I'd sound like Ira a lot. I'd sound like Walter Cronkite and various things. I mean, I was just like trying. We
0: need to stop you right there. Okay, sorry. So I found found a comment about somebody writing about Radiolab, Um, and I thought you'd be happy to hear how the voice you you created for Radiolab was described by a fan. Hmm. They've completely rejected the voice of God format, as well as the voice of casual God format, and even the voice of friendly NPR God format, and replaced it with a truly conversational tone. Very often hosts will interrupt each other and say something like, wait, what? What does that even mean? And that's so true. <laughs> and and I, I love that this person sort of was so descriptive about what you weren't. Yeah. And I can only imagine that those years of struggling and tinkering and experimenting gave you the opportunity to learn sort of semi-publicly how to do what you ended up doing.
1: Yeah. I mean, honestly, I'm so thankful like the first three years of Radio Lab were basically spent uh, Sunday nights on the AM frequency, uh, and no one was listening. I mean, I mean that quite. Well, didn't l- they
0: also cut back the band? Yes, quite a
1: bit? and so I mean that like literally, like, like they would cut people. the power yeah. of the transmitter right as I came on the air, so you you couldn't even
0: listen. It's like listen. one block radius.
1: You had to be hugging the transmitter with your body <laughs> to actually get my show. And I hated that, I thought it was horrible, I thought I was being taken advantage of, but actually now I'm really grateful because I feel like we all need that pe- period of benign neglect to figure out who we are, you yeah. know? Um, I, I get so sad for people who just like, they just walk right into the, a podcasting 12-part series that gets promoted. I'm like, just give it a minute. Really, like, you're,
0: yeah. you're sad? For, I, well. Uh...
1: Kind of like you kind of want people to have like that play play playgrounds where they can kind of, you know, I
0: mean, I do think it's important to be able to learn as you make. Yeah, because I think then what you make ends up being better.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And the thing about the gods that you just said, I had to sort of stumble my way into that. It's really weird what happens when you talk in front of a mic is that you suddenly feel the pressure to know things you don't actually know you know, because the mic brings with it all of the people who might hear you and judge you. And so it takes a long time to actually get to a place where you can talk as you actually talk. And I went through a lot of early, awkward periods where I tried to talk like that thing that NPR reporters do. They talk like this, dun, dun, like very staccato, very stentorian voice of certainty. And I, I never knew what I was doing. And it, it, when I met Robert, who then co-hosted the show with me for 17 years. Between us, we developed a way of examining ideas and playing with ideas that was very fumbly and very, um, it's just playful is the only way I could describe it. And where you didn't have to know things, you could kind of you know, be as stupid as you actually are. And that was the invitation, is that you're open, you don't really know, let's go find out together. Um, almost sounds kind of quaint to say all that now, but at the time it felt like a real discovery. Well, it was
0: almost as if Radiolab was a science show in a Trojan
1: horse. Yeah, it was like science for poets, I think.
0: Because you were able to teach really complicated ideas in a very matter-of-fact, very easy-to-understand, earthy way. Yeah. All that being said, I'd love to hear your Walter Cronkite voice.
1: No, God. (laughs) oh my god I remember once back in the WN by, at WBAI formative days I did a story about sickle cell anemia and there was some kind of study that had just came out and I, my voice was much higher than it is now and I just remember I was like the studies say that if you did uh, no, and, and, and there and he said there's that thing that NPR always does where it's like so it said and she said and he said like this is always this pronoun thing it was, I did all of that stuff badly <laughs> Um,
0: Your voice is only one component of the shows that you make. Music is another significant part. And the innovative way that you have scored voices, because that's sort of what I feel like you do. It's not just tape, it's scoring. Yeah. Um, It reminds me a little bit of Glenn Gould's piece, The Idea of North, where in multiple overlapping voices are scored as music. And I think he called that contrapuntal radio.
1: Yeah, yeah. And
0: I'm wondering if that was an influence at all.
2: Something fairly insidious about and there was this. There's a great deal of dispute going on as to whether. This well, was a wise, in our impatience.
1: Oh, I mean, I I played that piece in the early days of Radio Lab. It's a great. I mean, it's a it's a hard, it's a hard piece to listen to because you you have overlapping voices speaking for like 10, 11 minutes where you can't hear anything because they're all they're all talking, and competing for attention. But the idea of counterpoint was a really like. If I took anything from music school, it was that. This idea that you can construct a narrative that had many layers and the, and the layers could interweave and relate to one another so that as one comes forward, one ducks back. And you could create a kind of many-headed monster or many-headed sort of organism. And that was the part of the actual craft of it, the making of it, that I just, it was like a drug for me. Um, I think I took it too far in the beginning and then learned how to sort of play with silence and play with spareness as I got better. But that idea of like you have five interviews and you're telling one story and then it's about balance. How do I balance these five storytellers so that one starts a sentence, the other finishes it, or perhaps they all land on the same word to create emphasis on that word. It was just so fun, it was so fun. That, I remember, like, those early days of editing being like, oh, maybe I am a musician. Maybe I am a composer.
0: A composer of words yeah. in addition to a composer of music.
1: Yeah.
0: Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Visit Slack.com to get started. While hosting Radiolab, you amassed an audience of several million listeners each episode. Uh, You won several Peabody Awards, a MacArthur Genius Grant, the Alfred I. DuPont Columbia Award, Third Coast Awards, the Silver Gavel, Webby's, Ambys, and the On Air Festival Lifetime Achievement Award. Did the success of Radio Radiolab surprise you?
1: Yeah, it did. I mean, it, it still does. I sometimes wonder if it's a product of a specific historical window where we were in that moment where public radio was searching for new sounds and podcasting had yet happened and there was a gap. We stepped right into that space. I sometimes wonder, like, what if we hadn't done that then? What if we did it now would it work now I don't know like there's I, I that part of it still seems a bit weird to me
0: it's interesting in 2016 you were interviewed about the sort of podcast bubble and you said Mm-mm, this isn't going to last and you were I think one of the first that really said this is a bubble
1: hmm. did I say that you did okay <laughs> all, all, all right good job be former jazz
0: in the in the transcript when we Put this up online. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, it was, uh, it's funny. I mean, it's, I, I love what's happening in podcasting and I'm also worried about it a little bit. In what way? Well, I love it. I love the diversity of stuff that's out there. I love that every kind of, I mean, it, the idea, like to come from a media environment where, I remember in the public radio days, you would have to intern for three years before they even noticed you were there the gates were so steep and so strong that you could only really hang out and be noticed if you had like means, you know? So there was this like, there was this sort of weeding out that wasn't good. And now we're in a situation where everybody with just a a laptop and a cheap mic can make a podcast. And so we've, we've gone this completely other route. And so I, as cynical as I can sometimes get about podcasting, I don't, ever question what a radical development it is in the history of media, that you can actually get on the radio yourself without anyone telling you yes or no. I think that's pretty spectacular. Um, I do worry though when I hear the 500th true crime podcast. You know, I worry about the, the, the um, economy of it a little bit, the kinds of things that are being privileged, the kinds of things that are being sort of funded I worry that like a show like This American Life or Radio Lab would never be funded right now. I think we, the only reason those shows exist is because they were grandfathered in. But to say, I wanna, I wanna pay 30 producers a living wage to do journalism, no one's gonna take that bet right now. Literally no one. And so I, I worry about it that way. There's a lot of people getting the mic for the first time and that's amazing, but then I think, well, okay, well, well, let's say something that hasn't been said, and that takes a lot of work and that takes a lot of money. And I worry that that part of the equation is never gonna come back.
0: I'm hoping that when the dust settles, the same people that need to be speaking or and want to be speaking will still be speaking. And I hope one of those people is you. After 20 years of hosting this show that you created, that you brought into the world, You decided to hand it off to your co-hosts
1: why it's so funny you know it's such a no one's ever asked me that question weirdly it's it's strange because it's such a clear obvious question to ask but um uh why i think i think there's a point at which leaders have to lead leave to let other people lead in a way it's almost part of the physics of an organization. You know, you start a thing, you lead it for a while, and then you have to let someone else do it. And for me, what how that registered was I, you know, I, I started Radio Lab literally in my basement. And I would do all of it. I would do I would find the stories, I would report the stories, I would voice the stories, I would edit the stories, I would score the stories. And all I ever wanted at that time was help. I was like someone please come and do this with me. And then they showed up, and I, so, you know, starting with Ellen Horn, best hire ever, who's now directing the audio journalism program at NYU, and then Robert, I didn't actually hire Robert; he just wouldn't leave. <laughs> but, <laughs> but thank God, because he's the, maybe the most brilliant human I've ever met. And um, and then Lulu and Latif and Soren, who are all goddamn geniuses. And the thing about working with talented people is that you run out of ceiling, you know, like. They run out of ceiling, I mean, and, and I learned pretty quickly that the way you work with really good people is you step back and you let them step forward. And then you step back some more and they step forward some more. But what that made me was a kind of like manager of creative people, which was fun for a while. Like there's all, all kinds of new problems you solve when you're trying to do that part of the job. And I had to learn all that. But then at a certain point, I just n- knew that wasn't what I was good at. There was a moment, like 2016, I took a break because at that point I I was still really struggling to figure out how to delegate. You know, I was still doing way too much of the work myself and that was hard on the staff. So I came back and I really tried to commit myself to like, okay, how do I make sure this show continues without me? And uh, particularly like 2020 on, we really did like an audit of the entire process and trying to figure out ways to get everybody involved. And somewhere around 2021, I looked around and I was like, we have really killer hosts now, aside from myself. We have this guy, Soren Wheeler, who's this, who has been the center of gravity editorially for years. The best producers I've ever, I could ever imagine. Like, this is the moment, you know? I was a little worried that they were gonna like, but they were just like, cool, see ya. <laughs> you know, and, and it was great. And and now it's, it's Actually, it's one of the things I'm most proud of is that the show is just doing its thing still. And it's I have a feeling in the next year they're going to completely, I think for a while they were going to like keep it from breaking and now they're going to break it as they should. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It just felt like a natural process of growing up and creating a thing that's bigger than you and then realizing, I think that means I have to walk out. Like, that's just part of the natural life cycle of it.
0: Well, there's one thing thinking about walking out and quite another actually walking. And I think that's one of the most difficult decisions I have contended with over the course of my life. When is it time?
1: Yeah. Um, Do you have a, an answer to that question? No. No. I know no. this isn't. No, you're you're the interviewer. No, but I, no.
0: I mean, if I did, I would be very happy to share it with you. Okay, it's something I've been just thinking about and mulling over and obsessing over and crying over and yeah. laughing over for for about a year now. So no, I'll, I'll get back to you. It's on that very. One
1: it's a lot of. It's a big commitment. That work. I mean, we're not curing diseases or anything, mm-hmm. but the work does ask a lot of you. You know, like you kind of you can't really phone it in. You no, have to put I, your no. full self into it so that's a lot to ask for 18 years
0: in that same article where you were talking about the bubble which was in the guardian by the way i'm remembering okay um you stated that podcasting school doesn't exist there's no place someone can go except to get a job where they can learn that stuff Well, in April of this year, you were invited to join Vanderbilt University, the same school your dad has taught in, in Nashville, Tennessee, full circle, to create a podcast institute with a focus on thinking deeply about the ethics of what we do, the craft of what we do, and the art of what we do. And I have goosebumps just saying that out loud. It seems like real full circle for you.
1: Yeah. I mean, it has been... On a number of levels. Um, yeah, so I mean, just actually this month, I think we'll be launching that. It's really not going to be quite the podcast institute that they sort of named in that article, but it'll be something more like a laboratory where we'll experiment with like, what else can we do with audio stories? Like, may, not just making podcasts that go on Spotify or iTunes, but what if we create platforms of stories for hospital waiting rooms or for the lobbies of performing arts centers where you can experience stories. I mean, the stories are so powerful and they should help people and they should make people's lives better. They will if we just think about that as our intent. So the idea is to do experiments and to pilot projects and just to see what happens.
0: So a whole different kind of lab.
1: I think so, yeah.
0: In 2012, you were asked, Who is the Radiolab Jad Abumrad and who is the real Jad Abumrad? And you said it was a good question and stated that the Radiolab Jad is the real Jad with certain aspects of the real Jad amplified. The Radiolab Jad is a little more animated than the real Jad. He's probably just as curious. So now, over a decade later, I'd like to ask you this. Who is the Jad of Boom now post Radio Lab?
1: Oh, my God. That's a great question. I don't know. I mean, that's such a that's great a question. That's a great answer. That's a great um, answer. I don't know. I mean, it's... it's. I still think I would say he is a... I feel weird saying it a third person, but I'm just going to lean into it. He is a two things at once, he's a storyteller, and he's a musician, and he's somebody who, like, really cares that things are beautiful, and he really cares that things have impact and make people's lives better, and have meaning, right? So he's somebody who's searching for it all, and he's, and he's other than that, he's just as dumb as the next person. <laughs> so I think that, I think I would say that's who he is, I mean, but it's an interesting question you asked, because it's a question I'm really actively thinking about now. I mean, the thing that happens when you make a show for 20 years is it defines you. It's the answer to every question you get. Like, what do you do? Well, I make a thing. It comes out on Fridays, right? I don't have that simple answer anymore. It's a more complex answer. Um, I think probably the answer I would give now would probably include teacher is, is a new thing I'm learning how to do. I don't know. Ask me again in a year. I hope, okay. I, I hope I'll have a, a shorter, tighter answer for you.
0: Deal. The last thing I want to share before we finish is this. In 2022, you gave a commencement speech at Caltech wherein you stated the following. You will never know the effect you will have on someone. It doesn't matter if you know. The universe will never tell you if you're right or wrong. You just have to try. And, Jad, as someone who's been in the podcasting space now for nearly 20 years, I want to let you know you've had a profound effect on the work that so, so many of us do. I want to thank you for making so much work that matters to so many. And I know I'm speaking for the entire audience here. We can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you so much. Thank Thank you, Jad. The master in the house.
2: This interview was presented by On Air in New York City on September 18th, 2023. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. The interviews are usually recorded at the Masters in Branding Program at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, the first and longest running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Wyman.